Hello and welcome to OU's Nach Yomi. You can find this year posted at ouradio.org/nach or on my website, ericlevy.com, under the recording section. Hi, this is Rabbi Eric Levy and I am pleased to bring to you Chapter 5 of the Book of Job, Sefer Eov. Uh, chapter 5 is a continuation of Eliphaz's speech to Eov, who was sitting in mourning. Kiran Nahayesh Oneka if you call out now, do you think someone, i.e. God, will answer you? And to which of his holy ones, his angels, are you turning to? Eliphaz's message in this chapter seems twofold. One is that God is not only transcendent, but that God is just. That when it comes to God, things will eventually come out right for people who put their trust in him. And there's a more accusatory message that is the second part of the message, which is more accusatory, is that based on the fact that God is just, only fools complain to God about, not complain to God, but really complain about God when they're complaining about their troubles. Indeed, the act of complaining itself about God is sinful. So in this way, Eliphaz is able to hint that Eob's sins are, in fact, his harsh words against God, even though these words came after Eov's afflictions, somehow they justify Eov's afflictions because of the way that Eov is speaking out against God. Indeed, Eliphaz asserts, anger will kill a fool, meaning one who gets angry at God is a fool, it defines him as a fool, and zealousness, kina, in the sense of hot-headedness, kills the simple-minded, a poter, a petty, a fool. Yes, Eliphaz is in fact calling Eov a fool, although here and in the next verses, Eliphaz is speaking sort of generically, so he's never really pointing his finger directly at Eov. Uh, but since Eov is decidedly not uh, a, an idiot, I think he knows full well what uh, Eliphaz is trying to get to. Ani ra'iti avil mashrish... And I have seen a fool, which remember Eliphaz is defined as someone who complains about God. Uh, I have seen a fool put down roots, and his domain was suddenly destroyed. The word ekov literally means, and I cursed. But it doesn't seem to mean that the destruction uh, of Eov came about because Eliphaz gave him a curse, uh, or cursed his dwelling. Uh, but what he's saying is that when he saw what happened to Eov, he attributed it to uh, the result of a curse that must have been on Eov for what he had done, for speaking out against God or whatever other reason he had. So he affirmed that he saw a curse take place. The reason why Eliphaz is stressing himself and saying, I saw and I cursed, is because in the previous chapter, Eliphaz claimed to have seen his truths via a vision or a prophecy. But here he's stressing that he's seen it with his own eyes. He's seen with his own eyes the fact that what he's saying is true and that the foolish, uh, that the foolish and the sinfulness of the foolishness and the sim- sinfulness of complaining to God is what causes these bad things to happen to people. Ve'en Matziel, his sons, i.e. the full sons, were distanced from salvation. They were crushed at the gate with no one to rescue them. It's hard to imagine that Eliphaz, pretending to talk abstractly, 
is, and, and while he is, seems to be talking in the abstract, is really referring to anything else except for Eov uh, causing his own sons to die. When he says, Yerchaku Vanav Miesha, his sons were distanced from salvation. Asher Ketziro Ra'ev Yochel Ve'el Metzinim Yikachehu V'Sha'af Tzamim Chilam. And his harvest, that is the fool's harvest, is eaten by the hungry, i.e. he loses his control of his of his own produce. They, the poor and the hungry that are plundering his field, collect it in their baskets, and the thirsty devour his produce, or the produce of the land. This is a very challenging verse, to say the least, and the words are very difficult, but I'm translating tsinim as a form of tsene, or tene, meaning a basket, and Samim seems to be a short form of Tzimeim, with the Aleph missing, which means the thirsty, the ones who are not hungry but thirsty. In any event, um, even with the, the difficult translations, the sense is that um, the fool loses everything he has, and he has to watch it as it all essentially goes to Hefker, it goes to the masses, and is plundered uh, by the masses. Now, the next two verses are challenging in that they seem to actually contradict one, uh, each other, one another. The first says that suffering doesn't come from nowhere, that it is in fact a product of sin. The second seems to say that man was born to suffer, that is, it's out of man's control. So the question is, how do those two verses uh, coexist if they really contradict themselves? So Shadal, Rav Shmuel David Lutzatu, a great, great commentator, um, tried the following. He says that the second quote means, doesn't mean that man is born to suffer, but that Eliphaz is saying, oh, I hear some people say that man is born to suffer, but I, Eliphaz, reject that. I'm going to translate the second verse a bit differently, however, and it will, in that way, and we'll see how that, my, my translation will, will avoid the seeming contradiction. Indeed, sorrow does not come out of the dirt, i.e. it doesn't come out of nowhere, and suffering doesn't sprout out from the ground. Rather, and now the next pasuk, ki adam le'amal yulad reshef yagbihu uf. It is because of man, that is, his efforts, or in this case, his sins, that like any other produce, suffering is born. That is, if a man works the ground with sin, then what is produced, what pops up, is suffering. And the airborne, uvnei reshef, uh, and the airborne things carry it in flight. Now, it's not clear if the airborne things, these B'nai Reshef, are supernatural creatures that spread and amplify suffering or the sins, or if the sins themselves are being compared to sparks, some kind of personification uh, or an entity that manages to take on a, like a an existence which spreads and amplifies itself. But either way, the idea is that man has produced his own suffering through his own actions, and that suffering takes a life of its own, but one should not think that the suffering comes from nowhere. Now, Eliphaz contrasts his own approach against Eov's approach. Ulam ani edrosh el el, ve'el Elohim asim divrati. But I, I look to God, it is to God that I place my words. The implication is that the very act of complaining about God, which which Eliphaz 
has correctly identified uh, Eov as having done, that the very act of complaining against God are not words that can ever be directed to God, but are always words that are directed away from God. And perhaps that's what Eliphaz meant in, in the first verse of our chapter when he said, Maybe he didn't mean supernatural creatures like angels, but supernatural creatures that work sort of against God. Um, and, and therefore he may in fact be claiming that he's some type of blasphemer for worshipping uh, uh, false idols or at least leveraging uh, false gods in order to complain against uh, uh, God himself. Now we will see... Now. We will see what will happen is Eov rejects this. He will say that, in fact, I can complain about God to God and that it's not disrespectful and that it's not some type of false worship. But Eliphaz asserts that by complaining about God, one is essentially not talking to him or not working with God. And Eliphaz will now describe that God is omniscient and he is omnipotent. And he will explain that those, therefore, who go against God are doomed because of God's omniscience and omnipotence, as opposed to those who put their faith in God, like Eliphaz does, who are, in the end, rewarded. It's a famous verse. He who does, that is God, who does great works that uh, cannot be measured, that cannot be analyzed, that are beyond human scope of understanding, and whose wonders are infinite. So we talk about God both in terms of quality, infinite quality, and infinite quantity. who gives rain on the face of the earth and sends water across the land. Now, Eben Ezra says something very nice here, which will take us on for the next few verses. He says the metaphor here is that Eliphaz is saying that it doesn't always rain. And sometimes it looks like it's never going to rain when you're sitting in the middle of the drought. But what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to turn to God and eventually he will hear our prayers and he will give us the rain that we need. And all of a sudden, just when the lack of rain was bringing people down, he places the lowly on high, and the Kodarim are raised up in salvation. Now, Kodarim is the name of a very leathered and tanned uh, uh, people who lived in the desert, the Arabian uh, Peninsula, who managed to jump from small oasis to small oasis, but essentially lived a, a nomadic and, and desert la- uh, life as they traded uh, across the Arabian Peninsula. Um, this nation would later develop into the Arab nations that we know now. But here the real sense is that those who are darkened, the word, word kodar really means to be dark. So those who are darkened by thirst and lack of water are restored when God gives his reigns. He, that is God, who confounds the plans of the quote-unquote clever, the Arumim, uh, their machinations, their machshavot, um, and, and their hands are unsuccessful. That is, their planning and their, their machinations and their plotting are all unsuccessful. Perhaps uh, these clever ones were planning to corner the market on high-priced bottled water, that is, when it stopped raining and everybody started suffering there were these small group of people who thought that they could use their wisdom and their knowledge and their savvy to uh, control the water flow and situation and therefore they started essentially oppressing and manipulating the poor and the weak 
but when the water started coming down and the rain started returning, it became free and abundant uh, for everyone to have water, therefore messing up and destroying the plans of these uh, clever and savvy people. Continuing with these wise men who think that they can work around God, He who traps the wise in their own cleverness and the plans of the tricksters are too impulsive, Nimhara for the word my hair, that is, too quickly laid out and therefore quick to come apart. In the day they encountered darkness and at midday, or in the afternoon when the sun is high, they lurch around like they feel around as if, as if it's nighttime. And now we turn to the innocent, who were the intended victims of these plotters and planners, who thought that they could outwit God's plans and laws. And he saves them, i.e. he saves the poor who suffer during the absence of water. And of course, water is a metaphor for the tangible grace of God. Getting back to the verse, and he saves them from their hands and from their mouths. The Tao trodden, that is, he saves them from the hands of the powerful. Note the beautiful metaphor, as if the poor people are laid out like food on the chopping blocks of these clever ones, ready to be diced up and devoured. Also, note the very difficult syntax of biblical poetry in general, especially in the book of Eov. Uh, instead of reading Ve'evyon Miyad Chazak, he saves the downtrodden from the hands of the powerful, we get the uh, very pretty but the very difficult and sort of backwards uh, um, uh, verse or, or phrase, Umiyad Chazak Evyon. He saves from the strong the weak. So it, it's a little difficult to to uh, uh, understand, to parse, which makes Eof, of course, a very difficult book to learn in general. And the poor will find their hope as the sinners' mouths are shut. Remember the sinners who came to the table to feast on the poor, so their mouths get clamped shut. Kafza here does not mean jumped. Uh, for the word lekfot, but it means to uh, sort of to to uh, to contract to close. And now, after explaining that things will work out in the end for those who turn to God for help, uh, Eliphaz must explain how to deal with the suffering in general. That is, now that we're suffering, how do we deal with the suffering? And don't forget that Eliphaz has asserted in the previous chapter that everyone is flawed and everyone has sins, and therefore everyone is worthy of punishment at what time, one time or another. <clears throat> in fact, blessed is the person who is rebuked by God, who does not cast off or find disgusting the discipline of God. Now, this may be true that one has to, uh, uh, when one is, is is suffering, one has to sort of uh, look at that suffering as if it's tripe, a type of a benefit and try to figure out how to become a better person because of it. But it's not the kind of thing that you want to say to a person who's sitting in mourning, who's just lost everything he has, including his kids. <clears throat> Note also the word, the use of the word Shaddai here as a nickname for God, as a kinui for God. That used by itself, as opposed to with El Shaddai, which shows up a little more often. The word Shaddai by itself is found almost exclusively in this book, maybe 30, 40 times. Uh, it shows up a few times in Tehillim. It shows up twice in Ruth um, and a little bit in the later prophets and a few times by Bilam and Sefer B'midbar. But in all of those times that it's used, Shaddai, or I should say almost all of those times, the sense is the destructive force of God, that is God as a destroyer. And in fact, it is the word Shaddai is connected with the word showed to plunder. In fact, uh, Yo 
Shoel, and I think Yeshayahu also used the phrase, uh, showed me Shaddai, destruction from Shaddai, from God. So Eliphaz is saying, in fact, that God plunders, he destroys, he ruins. So, but when he does it, take it as discipline, take it as instruction, and bear it. Um, so, uh, in fact, he's saying that Eov should feel rewarded and blessed to have felt the whip of God. Because while he causes pain, he also binds those wounds. The hand that crushes is the hand that heals. And now Eliphaz leaves the abstract and he starts to speak in second person. He starts to speak directly to Eov. From six troubles, he will save you. And from the seventh, that is the seventh, that evil of the seventh one won't even reach you. Now, seven is the sign for like a, a, uh, the idea of many in the Bible, where it gets to be sort of like the usual thing. It gets to be common. It gets to be enough that one expects it. So therefore, what he's saying by saying that uh, only six will reach you is that it's really not too much to bear. And therefore, all you have to wait is to note that the seventh one will never come, and that will be a sign that uh, that you can uh, bear it and you will survive and that things will get better. During hunger, he will redeem you from death. During war, he will redeem you from the sword. Perhaps he's trying to say, listen, you were lucky that you didn't get killed by the sword, so maybe you should appreciate it. You will be hidden from the accusing, destructive tongues. Now, remember the opening chapters when the Satan was uh, looking for sinners to rain destruction down upon them. The Satan said he was going Mishut Ba'aretz, where he just come back, Mishut Ba'aretz, from being shut in the land and from wandering around. And the same word really, shot, is used here. So, um, so the hint is that it, perhaps Eov is, uh, or Eliphaz, I should say, is hinting to the, this devil character causing all this pain to come on Eov. Um, however, really, Eov nor Eliphaz knew about the opening scene, and that neither knows that these punishments are not punishments at all, but really just a test against Eov. Um, and therefore... Uh, what Eliphaz is probably referring to is just the destructive nature that God empowers to happen sometimes. And therefore, getting back to the verse, it says, Lo tirami showed kiavo, you will be hidden from ruin, or you will not be afraid of, uh, the ruin when it comes. When, um, so also note the play on the word shot and showed, which is destruction and ruin. So while shot and shoot may mean to sort of wander around, as I said in chapter 1, as I also said there, there is a sense of kind of a destructive mission in that motion and wandering. Not only will you be able to hide from ruin, however, so Eliphaz says, listen, yeah, I told you that you'd be able to hide from ruin, but you're going to be able to do even better than that. He returns to the word showed. L'shod ul'chafan tishak u'michayat ha'aretz al You will not only hide from it, but you will ra- laugh. You will laugh at ruin and famine. Chafan is famine, the Aramaic translation for famine. You will have no fear of wild animals. Now note there's a switch from human enemy to the beasts as the enemy. 
which allows Eliphaz to create this kind of theory, this Mother Earth type of theory, where one who turns to God becomes one with the Earth, and the Earth itself becomes his ally. Indeed, you will make a covenant with the stones of the fields, that is, they will never trip you up, and the wild animals will make peace with you, they will never attack you uh, and ruin you. And bouncing off the word shalom that we just had, Eliphaz promises Eov that assuming that he stops speaking out against God, the following will be his happy fate. Via data or via data, ki shalom aholecha ufakadata navacha velo techata. And you will know, via data, i.e. you will surely come to, it will surely come to pass and you will surely come to see it, that your home will be complete, that is whole and restored. And of course, ahalecha means, uh, not just a, uh, a tent or a home, but a family as well. In fact, the Arabic word ahal means, uh, family or mishpacha in Hebrew. Continue, getting back to the verse, when you take account of your dwelling, nothing will be missing. Note the word techeta means literally lachati, to miss. Like when an arrow misses, it says machati hachet, the arrow missed. But as usual, Eliphaz, if you remember from last chapter, Eliphaz is always biting with his double entendres and double meanings. And therefore the implication is velo techeta, if you don't sin, then you will find that your family returns and your house returns back to a full and and, and shalim state. V'yadata ki rav zarecha v'tzetzaecha ke'esev ha'aretz. And you will know that you will have many children and your offspring will be like the grass of the earth. Now, I guess that Eliphaz thinks that this makes up for the loss of the former children, that he'll wind up having more children. And in fact, by the end of the story, Eov does get new kids. But that's not really what Eliphaz is really, is, is, that is, that doesn't really justify what Eliphaz is trying to say here. Remember that the drama of the first two chapters, where he loses his kids, Eov does, and the last chapter where Eov gets new kids back, that's not really directly related to this whole discourse of theodicy, which is behind the book. And one can't really uh, say that uh, Eliphaz is giving the correct answer, just because in the end, uh, uh, Eov does get his children back. Uh, also, I'd like to point out the metaphor of the grass of the earth is probably meant to be positive, at face value that is numerous as it's used in Tehillim chapter 72. However, I can't shake, stop shake, I can't shake the feeling that there, this is another case of where Eliphaz has a double agenda, using double meanings all the time, since the, the metaphor of grass of the fields in Tanakh could also mean the kind of thing that gets cut down suddenly, like the way grass of the fields simply gets chopped down with ever really understanding what happened to it. And that's how it's used in Tehillim 92, as well as in other, um, as in other places. And so too, I, I can't help feeling that there's this underlying threat in that verse and in the next verse as well, or the next verses. Tavo b'chelech elei kaver kalotz gadish v'ito. The word kelach is hard, and in fact it's only used twice in all of Tanakh, and both of those times are in this book, but it seems to mean you will come with the vigor, or perhaps with a good age, to the grave, uh, just as wheat, ba- wheat bundles, that is produce bundles, are cut off in good time. That is not too early and not too late. So the promise here at face value is that if Eov will lead a good, long, healthy life, 
Although, again, I, I think it's a very ominous metaphor, if you ask me, uh, as if to say that if he continues his sins, he will get chopped down early. He will wind up growing to the grave while he still had vigor, that is, while he was still in his uh, youth as opposed to his old age. And he's cut down like produce um, as opposed to be able to really uh, continue growing and growing. But maybe I'm just being paranoid about Eliphaz. Uh, who uh, indeed ends this chapter very confidently, and even though he once said that God's words had no, God's actions, his works have no cheker, he now says he ends off with the following: All of this we have examined it, and it is so. So listen to it and comprehend it for your own sake. Dalach. Ouch, with friends like these, who needs enemies? Get ready for Eov's most uh, annoyed response tomorrow in chapter 6.